Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Welcome to Batter Up, 92.9 The Game's weekly Atlanta Braves podcast. I'm Braves insider Joe Patrick here with Knox Bardeen, the man of many digital titles. And Knox, it's it's been a heck of a week since we last talked. Braves are starting to roll here a little bit. Um, got, a, got a series win over the Brewers. Got a series win. It looks like it's going to be a series win. Um, crossing our fingers over the Giants here. Braves are starting to roll a little bit. It's kind of interesting where they are in the landscape now in, in, in Major League Baseball. I, I, we were talking before the show, but, you know, the Braves played the Dodgers, what was that, a couple weeks ago right. when they went on that West Coast uh, road trip. And it looked, it, it it was not great. You know, they they got swept by the Dodgers, and I think you know Braves fans wanted to think that they were at that level to compete with a team like the Dodgers, and the Dodgers just you know kind of swept them aside, literally and figuratively. And uh, yeah, you like that. Um, but now, ever since then, of course, Brian Snicker made the lineup change, moving Acuna to the leadoff spot, and things have started to come around. Where are you on the Braves? Like, where what is this team going to be? I think it's going to be in a fight for the postseason. I'm not ready to say – first off, I'm not ready to mention the Braves with the Dodgers. I don't even think I'm ready to mention the Braves with the Brewers, even though I know they handled the Brewers pretty well here last week, some of the 10 games you've been speaking of recently. But after those two teams, you know, and obviously the Cubs have been playing really well right now, after those teams – in the National League, I think the Braves are right there. Let's face it, there's going to be a dogfight for the National League East. The, the Phillies, I still believe, on paper, are the top dog there, and they are in the, in the standings as well. But I think it's going to come down to, to Philly and Atlanta. Um, I'm not certain that the Mets are going to stick around. The Nationals just don't seem like they That's have crazy. It. The Nationals, man. What, what happened to them? Now, they've been playing since the first week of April without their best player, Trey Turner. True. And there's lots of, of trade ideas out there with, with some of their other bigger players. But at 19 and 30, as we sit down to do this podcast right now, are, are they going to be relevant down the stretch when they have proven time and time again that they, they aren't relevant down the stretch? So this is a, a an East battle between the Braves and the Phillies, I believe. I, I think the NL Central is phenomenally good. The Cubs and Milwaukee are probably the, the cream of the crop there. And, and, and the Dodgers, I think, are the best team in the National League right now. The Braves are, are after the Dodgers, after Milwaukee. I think you could start mentioning this as NL Powers. It's it's shaping up in a really interesting way to me because coming into the season, I thought you know you could see a winner from the NL East at 90 games, something like that. It would be a I, I and a lot of other people thought it would be very much a dogfight between basically four teams that were all kind of ramping up this season to to really compete in the division, and I thought we would see. The break, I thought the NL East would look a lot more like, you know, something like the NL Central or even the West right now is looking with, with these teams kind of more closely bunched. So it's interesting to me kind of the way that things are shaping out. And maybe it's going to take a lot more than 90 wins to win the NL East this year. It might it might come down to, you know, these two teams, the Braves and the Phillies, might separate themselves. It's There were kind of going heading that way. The Mets have obviously had their struggles as well recently, but they're starting to – you know, I, I still don't know what to make of the Mets, to be perfectly honest. But 
Me neither. And some of their pitching is starting to look a little better, but they still have some bullpen issues too. Mm-hmm. And they have some good young hitters over there as well. But yeah, nine, it's going to take 90 plus wins to win this division, but both Philadelphia and Atlanta have to do something along the way. Obviously, one of those two teams is probably going to get in with the East berth. After that, with with as great as the Central is, I mean, you're talking Brewers, Cardinals are in are the Cardinals in fourth place right now. I think that's what it is. Yeah, fourth um, uh, with a winning record. Pittsburgh is, is pretty darn good. Cincinnati is the only bad team in that division. So when you start talking about if Atlanta doesn't win the East, if they have to to rely on the wild card, and as right now they would be the final wild card team. Uh, but they're going to have to battle Pittsburgh, St. Louis, um, San Diego right now, Arizona right now. So it, you'd better win 95, 96 games and just sec- secure your spot as the East representative or it's going to be a rough battle. For sure. And I, I do think that that's where the way that this division is shaping up is kind of helping the Braves now at this point where you have more opportunities to pick up wins, you know, with a bunch of games against the Marlins. And if the Nationals really are as bad as – if they turn out to be as bad as their record is right now, you know – those are easier wins to pick up at where you're not like if you're in the central, you're having to battle tough teams constantly uh, with all these division games. So it's a good point. And, and I've always, I've never thought of it like that. I've thought for probably all season long that of these four teams in the NL East, the one that's going to end up on top is probably going to be the one with the best record against the Marlins. Yeah. I mean, you get 19 games every year and they're the, they're only four teams in major league baseball that get that. So Sorry, Marlins, but whoever beats up on you the most, that's who's probably going to win this division. It might not work out that way. The Central doesn't have that issue. Cincinnati's bad, but not Marlins bad. And, and the West, they're just going to beat up on each other. You know, it's funny. I think a lot of times we look, it's, it's kind of easy to overlook series when you're playing against these bad teams like the Marlins. But I actually find it, because of what you just said, I find those series to be really fascinating. Whenever any team in the division is playing the Marlins, it almost feels like any time the, the Braves, the Mets, the Phillies, any time any of these teams lose to the Marlins, it's like, ooh, there's a big slip-up by them. It almost almost feels like you need to sweep them to kind of just keep pace. Braves fans shouldn't smile when the Marlins beat the Phillies because, oh, it's it's just the Marlins. They should smile because that's an opportunity that that the Phillies just didn't take. They didn't um, make the most of. And so far, the Braves have been pretty good in that situation. So I don't know. (laughs) 19-0 is a little more much to ask. Sure, of course. You really have to have a 13-14 win season against this Marlins team. Yeah, I mean, when the Braves went out for that that 10-game road trip, six of the games, or I'm sorry, seven of the games were out on the West Coast. Uh, but three of them were against the Marlins, and it really felt like for that road trip to be a success, you really needed that sweep. If you if you if your goal was to come back with six wins, which they did, uh, you really needed those three games against the Marlins and the Braves. Of course, were able to sweep that series uh, a couple weeks ago, so that was that was good to see. Um, let's dig a little deeper in with the Braves, and I I gotta I gotta be honest here. There's been something on my mind the last couple of days, um, and it happened with Luke Jackson. Uh, he blew a save against the Giants uh, two days ago. And it was uh, let's. Uh, he gave up what was it? Three runs in the ninth inning, and three I, three of the single. He gave up four hits. Three of them were ground ball singles, like seeing eye singles, making their way you know through the infield. One of them didn't even get out of the infield. One was a single that would have ended the game by Pablo Sandoval on a hit ball that was about a foot outside of the strike zone. Exactly kind of the pitch you want players to be swinging at. And then after the game. Luke Jackson, I was just—he was just getting killed by people on Twitter. Um, everywhere I heard, you know, people were just slighting Luke Jackson, and I just—that's not the way I saw it. When I was watching that game, he was getting ahead of every hitter he was facing. He was throwing his 
breaking balls for strikes, which we all have been clamoring for the bullpen, uh, the relievers to do all season is just, if you're going to fail, fail throwing strikes. And it seems like he did all the things right that you want to see the relievers do. And then he just didn't get the results for it. I, it's kind of funny because everyone did, not only did they jump on Luke Jackson, they jumped on Brian Snicker for defending him almost immediately. And Snicker came out and said almost some of the same things you're saying too. I'm looking at, and this isn't going to help you podcast listeners much, but I'm, I pulled up Baseball Savant, and if you're not on that website, you absolutely should go and play around with it. Um, some advanced metrics. There's a, a chart of the strike zone, and, and I logged in for Luke Jackson, and I looked at all of his pitches that were hit. So there are, let's see, six either ground out singles or final pitches to strikeouts. And if you look at this, all these pitches are exactly where you want them to be. And those three hits you're talking about, Pablo Sandoval's it, it was well down and low outside. So you want them to swing at that. And they should not go as hits, and they eventually will not go as hits. I'll put this up on, on my Twitter, and I'll get Joe to retweet it as well. He'll give you all that information toward the end of the podcast. But go as you're listening to this, go to our Twitter accounts and just look at this graph right here of Luke Jackson's final pitches to batters, and you'll see just what he's talking about. He shouldn't have had as bad a game as he did. You could talk luck. You can do anything you want, but – this is a guy who is being eviscerated in, in the media, in the general public, and quite honestly shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, that, and I don't I don't want to speak for you here, Knox, but this is not me saying that I think Luke Jackson is perfectly suited to be the Braves' closer this season and that they, he will solve those issues. That's not the case. I mean, the Braves, I think, need to make a move for a bona fide closer, who, someone mm-hmm. who has that experience. But I just think that in that situ- in that particular situation, I think the result of what happened kind of gave rise to a lot of you know malcontents that Braves fans have been harnessing for a long time. So I just thought it was a little unfortunate. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because we've talked to Max Fried and Mike Soroka this season, and what has really made these guys so successful at such a young age is they have a very simplified thought process, and they're not so concerned with what happens after the ball leaves their fingertips. All they can control is their own pitching mechanics and executing their pitches. And it's a very, it's a very process-oriented way of thinking, not a results-oriented way of thinking. They're not thinking in terms of how did I, you know, how did my stats, you know, how did the other team hit me, that kind of thing. They're only concerned about what they are controlling. And I just feel like in this, it, this is um, not the same in terms of judging Luke Jackson's pitches per se, but in terms of our thinking as fans, I think that we need to look at it like. Did Luke Jackson perform the way we would want to see him perform? Now, you can argue how the opposition performed against him, but if, if you can think about putting the process first, that will, over time, lead to more success. That's exactly what sabermetrics geeks have been screaming for the last 10, 15 years, and I'll, I'll raise my hand. I am one of those sabermetrics guys. When a ball is put into play, unless it's a home run, the pitcher has no more control over it. There's eight other players out there on the diamond that have a lot to say about whether that's going to be a base hitter and out errors. I'm talking about stuff. So when you look at wins and losses, those are crazy, unreliable stats. A pitcher can pitch phenomenally and still lose a game. He can pitch terribly and still win a game. Earned run average is even flawed in, in that regard because there's just too much going on, on on the diamond that the pitcher has no control over. That's why you look at – Fielding independent pitching, which is a a stat that's been out there, or um, one of the ones I'm going to throw at you right now, expected weighted on base average. And that's a very interesting number when it comes to Luke Jackson because he ranks in the top, let's say, top 
5% of the league with a 243 expected weighted on base average, which means he's supposed to be pitching a lot better than he is. He's just getting rather unlucky. Then you take a look at he's also in the top 9% of the league, and I'm talking all of Major League Baseball, with hard hit percentage. The balls don't come off the bats very hard against him. They're just squirting through the infield. They're they're not even getting out of the infield in Pablo right. Sandoval's case, and then there's base hits. So take some time and, and get interested in, in the pitcher's numbers outside of ERA, outside of wins and losses, and you'll start to see that Luke Jackson is a much better pitcher than we're giving him credit for. And I there was a – probably this is the second week in a row – and we've only had two podcasts, so it means 100% of the time we talk about Eno Saris from The Athletic. He's just a fantastic writer, when, and, and Sabermetrics geeks love this guy. But he just talked about uh, the entire Braves pitching stats, and he sat down with them, and he was talking about uh, a new metric that just came out from Major League Baseball, the amount of movement on a pitch from top to bottom, vertical movement. And a lot of the Braves pitchers are in the top five, top six in Major League Baseball of movement. And Luke Jackson ranks third in slider movement. His slider moves better than every other pitcher in Major League Baseball from top to bottom except for two other guys. Yeah. That's incredible. And, and that means – it doesn't mean it's going to come around because he, he might be an unlucky guy. You know, you always have those people, you know, I'm not going to get too close to him. He's always the one that gets hit. or He's always the one that hurts himself. I don't want to ride in the car with him. I don't think Luke Jackson's quite unlucky like that. We expect for him to regress back toward the norm. And with his outstanding stuff that we're looking at from all these metrics we now know how to use, he, he should his season could turn around. But I agree with you. I'm not sure that I'm ready to, to – write his name down in pen and say this is the team's closer moving forward. There, there are probably some better options out there, at least in the short term. Yeah, and I think, you know, when it comes to Luke Jackson, I think one thing that holds him back is that his repertoire is pretty simple. You know, he's going to throw the vast majority he calls himself, or maybe, I don't know if he came up with this nickname or his teammates did, but I think his teammates call him the, uh, the friendly, your neighborhood friendly slider man or something like that. Um, he's going to throw sliders. I think he throws them more than half the time. 52.8%. Okay, there you go. And when he's not throwing that, he's probably throwing the four-seamer. You know, four-seamer's 35.2. So, I've yeah. got numbers for you, Joe Patrick. <laughs> that's, what, that's, what, that's, what, that's why they pay you the big bucks. Yes. Um, but, you know, when, you're, when you have a, a repertoire like that, I think it is a little easier for, pitch, or for batters to anticipate what might be coming. But I do like, like you said, the, the amount of movement that he gets on that slider is really good. And he can throw it for strikes. He can throw it to get to for for swings and misses. So I I, I really like Luke Jackson. I, I you know he's not a he's probably not a closer, uh, but I think he can be a very key asset for this bullpen. I mean he's already shown himself to be that so far this season. So, but I, I but I want to kind of pivot on this to the closer situation because I thought John Smoltz said something really. Um, simple but poignant yesterday in an interview that he did with uh, Andy Bunker and Randy McMichael and Andy and Randy uh, yesterday talking about you know as a, as a closer obviously you need the stuff right you need the dominant stuff but you also need that experience to draw on in those situations and right now the Braves don't really have those kinds of guys and it's not just the Braves by the way that don't have that are that are kind of missing some of this experience but I think for for a closer what I really want to see like you look at a guy like Sean Newcomb. He's got closer stuff. He yes. could be a closer. But do you really want to put him into that role when he doesn't have that experience of both success and failure in that position? I think what John said was that you want guys who can, when they're in a tough situation, who have that experience, who have been through those fires, 
who have been kind of forged in that crucible before, um, that's what will give the Braves it, a real legitimate closer to really make a playoff push with. And absolutely, and you want to talk about a fantastic day of, of Braves coverage on, on 92.9 The Game here. Yesterday, the midday show with Andy and Randy, they had Smoltz on, which is a fantastic interview. Go go to radio.com and, or our website and, and listen to it. But also, the Dukes and Bell had Dale Murphy on. And Dale Murphy said almost the exact same thing, how these guys are too young. I mean, Luke Jackson, you have you know, Newcomb, like you just said. They're, they're not experienced enough to flourish in that role just yet. But let's focus a little bit on the, the pitcher. I'm going to go side with the pitcher here instead of the hitter in terms of what they're saying about the closer situation. Smoltz talked about how, as the closer, when you blow a save, when you come into that clubhouse and you've got 24 other people there looking at you and you're sitting here thinking, this is Smoltz as a seasoned veteran. He'd gone yeah. through years and years and years of, of MPP quality, and he's a, a Hall of Famer. And he's talking about you could feel those other 24 eyeballs on you in the clubhouse, and it's a terrible feeling. This guy had it all and, and was on his way to the Hall of Fame. Now you're talking about guys that – don't have two years experience in the league yet that are being forced to have all these eyeballs on them in the clubhouse. So Smoltz's point was it's absolutely affecting the clubhouse. And as soon as it, the experience comes, as soon as these guys start throwing better, wait until the mentality changes a little bit. I mean, this Braves team over the last 10 games is seven and three, and that's with all these problems in the bullpen Yeah, uh, all season long. There's been what eight blown saves, which to your point, I, I find it kind of funny that everyone's, ridiculing this brave staff for eight blown saves because it's not all their fault but there's other teams out there i mean let's just look at the nl east the phillies have five blown saves so the mets the nats have nine the marlins the worst team in the division only have three so if you're looking at blown saves and trying to find the lowest number that's not the way to do this but even the dodgers have eight blown saves yeah the The, dodgers yeah the cubs have nine so it you know once again, just like wins and losses in the ERA, don't just look at blown saves as how valuable this bullpen is. Do, do the Braves need some help there? Yes. Do they probably need an, an advanced or an improvement on their ninth inning guy? Yes. But this, just because they have eight blown saves, it's not a terrible bullpen. I, f- I find the whole relief situation throughout the major leagues really fascinating because to me what we're seeing, and John, again, Smoltz touched on this in his interview, was that you know, there's a shift in the way that general managers and the people that set up these rosters think about spending money for bullpen arms. And I think that also, you think about it from a young pitcher's perspective, think about if you were Sean Newcomb, do you really want to be in the bullpen? That's not think so. No, no. Because, you know, for future earnings, you know, you every, every young pitcher will want to be a starting pitcher. Um, so, but then again, from the Braves' perspective, if you've got too many starting pitchers, you've got these great arms, you might as well put them in the bullpen. So there's just a little bit of, you know, there's, there's, I, it seems like there's a reluctance for teams to really want to spend and invest in that area of the team. And it makes sense because, you know, really – uh, the bullpen is being used, especially at, you know closers only being used in you know much less. They're they're on the field a lot less mm-hmm. than you know other players. Although their leverage, you know, they come come in in much higher leverage situations. So it's just very interesting the way that teams are deciding whether to or to not spend uh, in the bullpen, which again I, f- I find really interesting. Um, but again, we'll we'll see how this plays out. I still think Atlanta will will make a trade for for a closer. I don't think they'll get in on this Kimbrel, this Craig Kimbrell sweepstakes. Um, I've he, heard he's played this brilliantly, by the way. Yeah. We just talked about all those teams with blown saves and all these teams having trouble in the yeah. back end of their bullpen. 
he was steadfast against taking less money, and he wanted five years. He wanted six years. Um, there were some rumors out there that he might talk 350, but he still didn't want to do that. And at that point, the teams had a little more power than they do right now. As soon as – I mean, everyone's waiting for the, the date to hit where they don't have to give up a, a draft pick to mm-hmm. go sign him. But as soon as that happens – he's going to field a number of phone calls. It's going to be a bidding war, and that's great for him. So congratulations yeah. to his it, agent. He earned his money. It's great for him, and if you're a Braves fan who wanted to see him in the Braves, I don't think it, it does right. not help the Braves at all that there's so many teams that need his services right now. So, um, yeah, we'll, but we'll see. we'll see what happens there. But uh, we have another topic we need to hit at, and this is about Austin Riley, the impact he's had on this ball club, and now what do you do when Ender and Ciarte – is ready to return. Now, it looks like he's not going to be ready to return as quickly as they thought. They initially put him on the 10-day IL, and he's going to need more time than that. It's not determined yet exactly when he will be ready to play, but at some point soon, you would think he would be ready. And what do the Braves do at that point? It, it feels like, I've, I've, I've compared this, it feels like Game of Thrones, where all these things are, you know, you have all these different storylines building up. But at some point, they're going to converge, and something quite drastic is going to happen and you know that's a subjective term but could we see a guy like Johan Camargo get optioned to Gwinnett he's not been in great form this season might benefit him to go down there get some regular at bats get regular playing time every day in the same spot um there they could you know release a guy like Matt Joyce someone like that who knows what's going to happen but something will eventually have to happen or could even somebody couldn't doubt this could be an opportunity the moment when the Braves do decide to deal one of these guys in a trade yeah I, I'm not the GM of this team. I don't have Alex Anthopoulos's ear, but I feel 100% comfortable in, in making this statement. I know Austin Riley is not going back to Gwinnett. 100%. He <laughs> has four home runs in eight games, and he's he's doing it you know, with a 375 batting average, I think. He's not doing it with a 220 and all those home runs. He, he's hitting the ball well, and he's not going anywhere. And, and four home runs in eight games, just think about that. And – it's just absolutely incredible. So he's not going anywhere. And if you listen to um, some of the post-game stuff coming from Brian Snicker um, as they were out west, he hasn't, you know, no one's really said, well, what happens when Ender comes back? Because he, they, they don't know the answer to that. But he's kind of around the way said, well, you know, third base, left field, even first base. You know, he's starting to throw out some options for Riley um, once they're forced to make this decision. So he's not going anywhere. I can understand your Camargo idea. And let me tell you where I think that's why I think that might be a good idea. This is a guy who, what, 19 home runs last year, mm-hmm. 270 something batting average. He could have been dealt to a number of teams in the offseasons. And the Braves said, no, we're going to use him as our super utility guy. Well, that just hasn't worked out. He's not going to get enough at bats. And, and it's pretty much proven now that unless he gets 500 at bats regular at bats he's he's not going to be the same guy that he was last year some guys just don't flourish in a pinch hitting role so the problem with that is you can't trade him now you could have traded him back in the offseason and it would have been you would have gotten some nice trade value for him you can't do that now because he just hasn't shown anything what if you do send him to Gwinnett and he just rakes for a month month and a half at that point you can go as Alex Anthopoulos and say look you saw what he did last year, 19 dingers, 270. You saw what he's doing now with regular at-bats down in Gwinnett. We're, we're pretty confident that 
he could bring us back some value. Now, you're still not going to get as much as you would have if you'd have traded him six months ago. Mm-hmm. But I, but that's an interesting idea. And you already have a guy like Charlie Culberson up here who can do a lot of the things. I know he's not quite as versatile as right. Camargo is, but th- there's some options there. But now that you have Riley in left field and you feel pretty confident in that, do you really need that super utility guy that they kind of planned on this year? I don't know if you really do. I mean, you have it, like you said, you have a guy like Culberson who can be a guy who comes in and plays in the outfield, plays, you know, basically wherever you want to play. He can even he pitched an inning this year. Um, so I don't know if that role that they had carved out for Camargo is still really exists. I think there is, an, obviously, there's a need for a utility type player on the Braves, but I don't know if it's that kind of what they described as the super utility playing 100 games for someone different every day. I just don't know if there's that need on the Braves roster anymore. So, And quite honestly, we already know that Freddie Freeman does not like to come out of baseball games. And, and yeah. Acuna isn't going to sit out all that much, even though it's going to happen sometimes. So you have probably 30, 40 games at third base that you're going to need. And Riley's just going to slide right in there. Uh, Marcakis is going to need some time off. Um, so you can move some things around there. But you're right, there's not – a Ben Zobris type role here on, on this team where a, a utility guy could get three, four, five hundred at bats. So yeah, I, it's really going to be interesting once NCR take gets back to doing um, all the full baseball battery of, of stuff he's going to do as he rehabs, which he hasn't started yet. But um, when he's ready to come back, what they do, is it going to be someone on, on the bench? Are they going to mess with the number of relievers they have? I don't think that's the answer because of said bullpen issues, but I, I'm very interested in the answer to that question, and you and I just aren't going to figure it out here on <laughs> right, May 23rd. Exactly. exactly. Uh, I did just want to say one quick thing about Austin Riley. Again, we you know we gushed about him in our show last week, but um, just so impressed by this guy. He uh, in his I think it was after his second or third game in his post game, he said he swung on he had he had a at bat where he hit a curveball first pitch for a single right up the middle, and he talked about how. His first at bat, he saw lots of fastball cutter. That was, that was the first the, the first two pitches he was seeing, and a lot of other pitch, uh, a lot of other batters were seeing. And then in the second go around the lineup, he noticed that whoever was the pitcher that night, I can't remember who it was, was throwing a lot of first pitch curveballs. And so he just said, "I was sitting on a first pitch curveball." That's such so rare to see mm-hmm. from a young player like that to kind of have that wherewithal. He's paying attention to other you know everybody else's at bats. He's not just kind of screwing around the dugout or or just you know chatting with his friends is really good and he had a home run yesterday against the giants fastball up in the zone it's kind of been the his the bugaboo kind of the scouting report on how to get him out um hit that one out for a home run he's he, that was the one kind of pitch he has struggled with a bit since he's come up and it's really good to see him he's clearly working on on you know getting the flaws out of his game which is really exciting. When you and I were, were in the media scrum that was introduced to Austin Riley when he first came up, we both walked away from that saying, this kid's a great talker. He's very comfortable with the media. And some of the things he says, even after his first game, he said, because he hit that home run in his first game on the second at-bat, and he said, I didn't see a lot of fastballs in that first at-bat, so I kind of guessed that he was going to challenge me. And first pitch, fastball, boom, he knocks it out of the ballpark. I hope that Austin Riley continues to tell us these things. It's fascinating to hear what's going on. You can oftentimes sit down with a ball player and he'll kind of talk to you about the what he's thinking when a pitcher is going through his sequencing or what he's what he's expecting. Is he sitting dead red? Is he going up there thinking about something else? But you don't often get it a lot in terms of post-game interviews or interviews with a bunch of other people. So if he continues to do that just from a selfish media standpoint, it's fantastic. This guy... And it just goes to show you, he he's happy. He gushed about that signal he hit up the middle because it was on a pitch he was either expecting or not. And 
he's not gushing about his home runs. He's not, you know, right. He's gushing about the the simple things. I'm I'm using air quotes there. Um, that every batter is expected to do, but isn't written about on the front page. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff, Knox. Uh, that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, please continue to check us out on Radio.com and subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Give us a rating and review while you're there. Uh, you can follow each of us on Twitter. I'm at JAPatrick200. It's a terrible username. Uh, <laughs> at Knox Bardeen. You can follow Knox as well. And follow the station at 92.9thegame. And we'll see you all next week on Better Up. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.